0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and Jerry's here somewhere. So this is Stuff You Should Know, the Art World edition. Yeah.
0: You know what I just realized? We, uh, We record these in twos. And we just recorded the uh, Pogs episode. Right. And you didn't say, welcome to the podcast."
1: I didn't, did I? What a
0: missed opportunity for a great
1: dad joke. That sounds like something I would skip, though, even had I I thought of it. I don't
0: know that I would have pulled the trigger on that. I think, or I could see you pulling the trigger and then making fun of yourself.
1: Right. I would have just been engaged in self-loathing for the rest of the (laughs) podcast.
0: Well, retroactively I'm going to say I hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. <laughs> now, let's talk about art mysteries.
1: I love this one, man. This is great. This reminds me like a, of a stuff you should know episode from years back for some reason.
0: Well, it's because we don't do these top lists anymore. That's our, part of it. You know, very famously we used to have top 10s on our old house stuff works uh, website of which usually there were maybe 7 decent entries. So we never did, I don't think we ever did a full 10 on anything. Maybe somebody could probably correct us. But this one actually came in at 7. They didn't even try. And I don't even know, we may do like five of these. We haven't even figured it out yet.
1: We'll see. We're going to play it fast and loose. I think that's another reason why it reminds me of an old Stuff You Should Know episode. Fast and loose. Like I was, yeah, fast and loose. Mm -hmm. First you got the fast, then you got the loose.
0: But never furious. Fast and loose. (laughs) Because <laughs> no. who wants to be mad?
1: I don't know. They should have called that know.
0: series Fast and Loose. Tokyo you know, Drift.
1: That, I think I've heard it before that that series is the um, highest grossing movie franchise in the history of film, like worldwide.
0: Yeah, you know what's funny is at one point we were, this was years ago, we were talking with Ludicrous about doing something with the network Mm-hmm. And I, because uh, he's he's a local guy here in Atlanta, and I right. talked to our boss and said, "What's he what's he doing these days?" Like I haven't heard any music, and he went, "He makes Fast and Furious movies, <laughs> like that's his job now." Yeah, because for he's sure. just getting rich off of making these movies. Like once I every can't few even
1: years. imagine. Yeah. And plus, also, I mean, they're pretty. It's pretty involved movie making, I would guess. Like, I'm sure because there's so many stars involved that, yeah. you know, the shooting schedule for each one isn't necessarily, you know, a year-long endeavor or anything like that. And they probably have it down to, like, a pretty fast science by now. But, like, I would think that would eat up a pretty decent amount of your time shooting one of those films every few, you know, a couple times a, a well, I guess every few years.
0: I only saw one of those, I think.
1: Man, I'm slowly like degenerating into Bob Newhart, man. Have you noticed? Oh, man, good. Yeah, you could degenerate into worse things than that, but I mean like I've really I'm really hitting that Newhart note these days, I've noticed.
0: That's a great note. I love it. I've always wanted Bob Newhart as my podcasting partner, so.
1: Well, you you've uh you've um
0: There you go. You you've got it, buddy. All right, number 1 on the list. You want to talk a little uh, Caravaggio? So Caravaggio is my new favorite painter. Oh yeah,
1: not just because he was a scummy low life um, swordsman, murderer from the murderer. Yeah, um, uh, he he was a gambler. Uh, he would he had weapons charges against him mm-hmm. while he was um, alive. He he was not a good guy by any stretch of the imagination. Um, very troubled person is a really polite way to put it. But if you look at his art, like, I had no idea. I've seen, like, so many works of his art, and I never pieced together that they were the same person. Mm-hmm. And then when I really started to read some criticism of his work, I'm like, oh, my God, this guy, he's considered one of the fathers of modern art. And yeah. this guy was painting at the beginning of the 17th century, the early 1600s. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like pogs, he burned hot and bright and, and fast and furious, actually, sadly.
0: <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. That wasn't even forced. Nice work, Bob. Thanks. So Michelangelo Marisi da Caravaggio uh, was an Italian Baroque painter. Um, he, at one point in 1606, killed a man named uh, Ramuccio Tomassoni, and said, I got to get out of here because uh, I'm in big trouble now. And went to uh, went away from Rome and fled to Malta, where he had a pretty brief but, um, I guess, notable stay. He was only there about six months and kind of hiding out and quickly hooked up with the Knights of Malta uh-huh. and was briefly one of the Knights of Malta. And, yeah,
1: like for a month.
0: Yeah, and painted one of his most famous paintings there. Uh, The oil on canvas, twelve feet by seventeen feet, uh, the beheading of John the Baptist.
1: Yeah, it was an altarpiece for the Order of Saint John, also known as the Knights of Malta. Um, They were going to again put this behind the altar in their church uh, on Malta, Um, and it was actually his little entry fee. They charged an entry fee, usually money, to their initiates or pogs. But they they accepted, (laughs) yeah, but they accepted this altarpiece, this giant painting of saint john the baptist being beheaded and it was actually i mean as far as a caravaggio goes especially toward the end of his life it's actually fairly tame because there's not you know uh, like jets of blood spurting out it's a pool of blood that's being shown um he he painted some really violent stuff yeah Uh, and and like you said that that kind of um that he was a master of of light and shadow it's called chiaroscuro um and, and he used it to really dramatic effect, including in that painting. And in fact, one of the other paintings that you might have seen of his, Chuck, um, it's called uh, "Judith Beheading Holofernes." Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? I have. So, Judith, the woman who's in that painting, the the woman who modeled for that um, for Judith, that was the woman that he killed, Bernuccio Tomasoni over.
0: Right. Did you know that? I did.
1: Oh, you did. Okay. Well, at any rate, they really while he they was, really
0: in this House of Works article, they called it a petty squabble and that that really doesn't tell the story.
1: Yeah, another explanation I saw was that it was over a tennis wager. Um and this is real tennis, not lawn tennis. And real tennis is kind of like this kooky um mix between squash and um racquetball and tennis. Mm-hmm. And it's all indoors and there's like um, horse sheds basically involved that you can play off the roofs of. It's really interesting stuff. And he used to play that a lot too. But um, so it was either over a wager or it was over this woman. Um, her name was, uh, what was it? Judith. No, Felide. Philide, I believe was the the actual woman's name, oh, okay. who modeled for Judith. So he ends up on Malta. He becomes a knight. um and when he he becomes this knight, he paints this altarpiece, and he signs his name in the pool of blood, which you're like, well, he's an artist. That seems like something an artist would do. Not Caravaggio. This is actually the first and only work of his that he ever signed, which a lot of people are like, okay, wait a minute, let's examine this.
0: Yeah, and it kind of took a while for it to be even very visible because it uh, underwent some restorations over the years. And in the 1950s, they did a restoration where they really could see the signature and what it said, uh, I don't know about for the first time, but like super clearly at least. And it said, F period, dot, <laughs> um, F. Uh, Michelang, M-I-C-H-E-L-A-N-G. And then, you know, of course, everyone's like, well, what does this mean? Because there is no F in his name. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not like his initial. Is he saying, you know, hey, screw Michelangelo, <laughs> myself, screw me, or I'm screwed? Yeah. No, no one really yeah. said that. They thought the F, uh, there are a couple of different theories, thought it was shorthand for Uh, Frater, which means brother, uh, because he was one of the knights, and maybe he just meant like brother Michelangelo or whatever. Uh, And then some other people said, no, maybe it means, stands for uh, FECIT, F-E-C-I-T, which is Latin for did, translating basically into uh, I did it, and it's spelled out in blood, kind of confessing to his crime.
1: Right. So, that's kind of like where the mystery comes in. Was he confessing to the crime of murdering Ranuccio Tomassoni? Um, From what I saw most, I can't say most, but the the art historians and critics that I saw basically said, no, he almost certainly wasn't doing that. For one, everybody knew that he did it. He'd already been convicted in absentia.
0: That's what I thought. So,
1: it's not like he was confessing to it. Although you can make the case that he was confessing in the um, Catholic sense of the word. you know what I mean? Mm,
0: right. Like before God.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. Or <laughs> De Beers.
0: Uh, that, um, that painting still hangs at St. John's Co-Cathedral in Malta, too.
1: Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it was the altar piece. Like, they, like it was a big deal that they got their hands on it. Because he was a celebrated painter at the time already yeah. in his lifetime. But the other interpretation that he was saying F as in freighter or brother um, Michelangelo uh, about himself, that's probably the likelier version because he was at the time seeking a pardon from the Pope, yeah. so he could return to Rome. Um, and by saying like I'm in this holy order, I'm basically like a a, a Catholic holy man now a whole a leader of the church Mm -hmm. because the order of saint john the knights of malta have inducted me um he was basically shouting it loud and proud by signing that one particular very holy painting that he
0: did but they said nice try buddy uh and they kicked him out for being a quote foul and rotten member end quote so it didn't work a month
1: After a month, dude, he lasted a month in the Order of St. John. And it's not like they ran around willy nilly inducting people. Like they basically um, had no idea that they had. um, uh, uh, What was Vic's last name in the shield? Vic Tabak. No, not Vic (laughs) Tabak. (laughs) I don't know. I didn't watch the shield. Oh, you didn't? It was good. I rewatched like the last seven episodes the other night over a couple of nights. It still holds up, actually. But anyway, they didn't realize that they they had inducted him, the guy from the shield, and they figured it out pretty quickly. So he made his way back from Malta to, I believe, Sicily on on his way to Rome. And I think he actually got a pardon um, and got into yet another squabble, another sword fight, and and, uh, sustained some wounds. And between infected wounds, they think he got a staph infection— Um, lead poisoning, he he apparently had gone rather mad from being exposed to the paints that he painted with. And then um, sun exposure, sunstroke on the beach in Tuscany finally killed him.
0: And so it goes.
1: Yes, it does. But his paintings are still just amazing. I can look at them all day, you know?
0: Yeah, me too. I like this this stuff.
1: I do too. So that's uh, Caravaggio. How about Vermeer?
0: Well, I think we should take a break. Oh, gosh. And okay. uh, we'll be back right after this. <laughs> All right. We had a great cliffhanger with Vermeer. Uh, Vermeer, the very famous Dutch artist, Johannes Vermeer, uh, had a very famous painting, a lot of very famous paintings, but one in particular uh, that has had a bunch of names over the years. Uh, In fact, it did not get the name Girl with a Pearl Earring until the 20th century. Uh, It was called everything from Girl with a Turban uh, to Mm. Girl with an Earring. Had lots Mm. of different names because it was not officially – titled by Vermeer nor dated even though they think it was around sixteen sixty five.
1: Yeah, he was just like this this dude who lived in Delft in the Netherlands and never left his hometown and had a, a wife and fifteen kids. And, fifteen. Yeah, fifteen kids. Um, and uh, just kind of painted, and he made probably a comparatively small number of works. I think around 36 are attributed to him. And there's a theory that um, as many as a fifth of those were done by his oldest daughter, Maria. Um, But he's kind of like this enigma at the time, not just personally, but also the stuff he was painting. Um, There was a a huge movement among the Dutch painters at the time that they would— uh, paint like um these you know horrific um hellscapes, or there was a lot of like obvious narrative and symbolism just all over the paintings. There was just a lot going on. Vermeer went a different way where he would almost peek in on very normal daily life um and capture like these these really um just kind of boring or otherwise mundane moments. Um, but he did it in a way that that this guy was like the 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 master of light. He makes he makes Thomas Kincaid look like puke as far as like you know light mastery goes.
0: So, girl with a pearl earring, uh, everyone has seen it. Like I said, it's very famous. It's a, of a young girl uh, looks to be sort of like mid teenage years, looking over her shoulder. Uh, she's wearing a dress. She's wearing that turban. Uh, very prominent earrings, large pearl earrings, and pearls factored into quite a few of his works over the years. And it's one of those paintings where the eyes follow you, supposedly, which Mm -hmm. uh, we've talked about in one of our short stuff episodes.
1: On Mona Lisa?
0: Uh, I think so, yeah. It's, you know, the effect of of the eyes following, which doesn't happen Mm -hmm. in all paintings with eyes.
1: Oh, no, the Mona Lisa's eyes actually don't follow you. I think that was the big reveal of that one.
0: Was it? Yeah. All right, so he paints this painting, and then, of course, the mystery of this one is, who is this person? Uh, There's been speculation that it might be a mistress. Uh, A lot of people think it was his daughter, Maria, who would have been about 15 or 16, and like you said, who um, some people believe painted about a fifth of the works attributed to him because about a fifth of his collected works aren't... I mean, this sounds mean to say, but they aren't as they aren't up to snuff compared to his other works. Mm-hmm. So they sort of stand out from the rest. So they think that they may have been Maria's good paintings. Still, it's, yeah, they're still a lot better than anything I could. do. Yeah, it's not like they were stick figures, you know, no. out of nowhere. <laughs> they're like this Vermeer seems off. Uh, but you know, if you've there was a 1999 novel from Tracy Chevalier, uh, the girl with the pearl earring, and then the 2000 film adaptation starring Scarlett Johansson who was perfectly cast. She looks, you know, quite a bit like the girl with the pearl earring. But this was historical fiction. If you've seen that movie and you're like, no, she was the family's maid's assistant and love interest to Vermeer, that was just, I don't even think that was based on anything. It's just historical fiction.
1: Yes. um, From what I've seen, the uh, art critics and historians basically tend to think that there there was no person that this was modeled on there it wasn't even necessarily his daughter in fact it was um kind of uh, a a trend at the time a painting called a trony which was an imaginary figure a, a person who didn't actually exist and the point was to kind of show off things like costumes and jewelry which is um ostensibly the point of that painting but the thing is the vermeer um the face that he did, and the 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 where the place that he put her, like I, I've, we were talking about how she gets compared to Mona Lisa. She's called the Mona Lisa of the North. Mona Lisa is like sitting back in the painting. The girl with the pearl earring is like right in the foreground, like right there's very little between you and her and she's turned around and her mouth's open, which apparently was very unusual for painting a uh, Dutch painting at at the time. Um, and it looks like she's going to say something. I guess that that is what entrances people with this, this, this image that, you know, what's she going to say? What did he capture her about to say? You know, it looks like she's turning around like, Oh, and you know, this other thing I hadn't told you.
0: Maybe she was an improv, uh, comedian and she was yes yes and you never know but this is a mystery that will never be solved which sometimes i like those kind of mysteries when it comes to stuff like this
1: yeah and i I saw that argued as well that it was like you know if we knew who she was it would just it would we would lose a lot of the
0: interest in it and we would have found out by now i think
1: yes um yeah and you're right we probably won't ever know but because of this so like it wasn't like very well um thought of or nobody really thought much of it until 1995 and the National Gallery used it as the poster for their big exhibit. Um, But since then, a lot of people have really kind of examined it. And I hadn't noticed this before, but I saw it pointed out, Chuck, if you look at the pearl earring, first of all, it's improbably large is how I saw it described. Like the the ear couldn't physically hold up a pearl that size. But then secondly, um, it's really basically made with two brushstrokes. Both of them are reflecting light. One is um, from the light source, and then the lower one is reflecting the light off of the collar. And it's pretty amazing that, you know, we talk about this the girl with the pearl earring, and this pearl itself is, a, is like a kind of a cultural icon, too. And it's basically just two brush strokes, which is kind of goes to show how great Vermeer was. Amazing. Have you ever seen Tim's Vermeer, the documentary? I have not. Oh, Chuck, you've got to see it. It's directed by. Teller from Penn and Teller, which makes you think, like, how did he direct if he doesn't talk, you know? But he somehow did. I think he talks in private. (laughs) It's about—what? That's just a bit. And it's about about a guy who basically figured out that Vermeer somehow projected images that he built in real life onto a canvas and then painted them that way. And he actually replicates a Vermeer, like, perfectly— um, it's really just one of the better documentaries you'll ever see. Very cool. Yeah. So what do you think? Uh, on to Raphael?
0: Yeah. So uh, the mystery here, and this is one of our, this actually has a Simpsons crossover as well, which is kind of oh, fun. Yeah? Because uh, Raphael painted a very famous painting called Portrait of a Young Man mm-hmm. and is g- largely described as one of the most famous, if not the most famous, pieces of art to go missing during the plundering of great art, uh, in world war two by Hitler and the gang. Uh, and this is a crossover with the Simpsons in that in the fighting hellfish episode, Mm -hmm. when grandpa Abe and Burns are stealing art, this is one of the paintings portrait of a young man. Oh, yeah, it's one of the paintings that they stole. Wow. uh, Which shows that, you know, Simpsons writers back then at least were, were definitely doing their work, uh, like their research work, because that's a nice little Easter egg, I think.
1: Yeah, totally. Doesn't it even talk? Doesn't it say something like someone's guilty conscience or something? I don't. am I making that up?
0: I don't know. I don't remember. I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen that one, but it was one of the great episodes, I think.
1: So the portrait of the young man, which they think um, was a Raphael self-portrait, and actually we have no idea what the colors were because the only photographs we have of it were in black and white. But it used to hang in the Princess Zartorsky, Um Museum in Poland, uh, along with two other really important paintings, um, Leonardo's Lady with an Ermine, which is a goat, stoat, I can't remember, kind of a weasel-like animal, and then uh, Rembrandt's Landscape with the Good Samaritan. And um, all three of those and everything else in the Prince's Artorski Museum were swiped by the Nazis when they came to Poland and placed in the office of a guy named Hans Frank, who was the head of the government uh, for the Nazis in Poland, right?
0: Yeah, and, you know, they almost, they almost got these hidden away successfully. When Poland mm-hmm. was being invaded, they knew that the art was going to be plundered. And so those three paintings were actually rescued by the prince and hidden away. Uh, in a in a house in a place that I can't even pronounce, Sienawa. I'm not sure what that is, but they were ultimately found by the Gestapo and handed over to uh, to Frank. And Frank, you know, they were supposed to go to Hitler. Hitler was going to open a museum, the Fuhrer Museum, in Linz. Mm-hmm. And Frank actually kind of kept it for a little while, hung it in his residence, and then eventually, um, this thing went to Germany and then Austria for a little while, and then back with Frank in 1945.
1: Which seems crazy improbable that it w- they would end up back with him, but they did. And um, the Allies came in to Poland, I guess, and, and arrested Hans Frank in 1945. And they were able to find the lady with an ermine and the landscape with the Good Samaritan. But the portrait of the young man was nowhere to be found. Yeah, they, they found a lot day, of other stuff too. Sure, they definitely did. But the three most important pieces in the Prince's um, Zartarsky uh, Museum were those three. And two were recovered, one wasn't. And it's very odd to think that they were separated at any time, or or that it's even odder to think that two were kept together, but one wasn't. And so, because the portrait of the young man was not recovered, and it's a Raphael— who's, you know, one of the the great Italian Renaissance painters, um, it's considered maybe the most important piece to go missing in World War II.
0: Yeah, and they, you know, along with I think over 800 other artifacts they got from him, and they could not go on to question him very long because he was executed just a year later. Hmm. And since then, there have been a lot of rumors about where this thing ended up, who has it, Uh, a lot of speculation that maybe a private collector And another country has it. Uh, I think in 2012, there was a false report that it was supposedly in some bank vault. And they really don't know. It's just sort of one of those great mysteries of of a disappeared painting. And uh, my my money is on a private collector probably has this thing stashed away. But you would also think that at some point somebody would talk.
1: You would think so. Um, And, you know, maybe they will eventually. Unless it's really stashed. Well, some people think it was destroyed, in that movie *Monuments Men*. Right, uh, they show the Nazis uh, igniting it with a flamethrower in a cave with a bunch of other art, um, and there, you know, there is a whole camp that says now this thing is it's gone forever. So they did something to it because the Nazis were known to not just plunder but also destroy art as well. Which just one more reason to love them Nazis. Yeah,
0: <laughs> uh, and I think this is oil on panel, so it's. I don't think this could even be like rolled up in a tube and put under your bed or anything.
1: Yeah, I would guess not. No, I didn't realize it was on panel, but that makes sense. But the the um State the National Museum in Krakow bought the um entire Prince Zartowski uh collection from a private collector for 100 million euros back in 2016. Ooh. And that that I know. And that included the rights to portrait of a young man in case it's ever found. And for now it just uh they have the the original frame hanging empty in the um in the
0: gallery. Oh. Yeah, that's it turns out that's a thing I didn't know was a thing. Mm-hmm. Empty frames sense. in galleries. It's kind of sad.
1: Yeah, it's sad. It's very poignant. It says, come home. Come yeah. home. We're leaving the light on for you. Come home. <laughs> Just like Motel 6. <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> i right. uh, Tom Brokaw.
1: We'll leave the light on for you.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, that means it's time for another break. And we'll be back right after this to talk a little bit about Van Gogh.
1: So, Chuck, before I launch into a Saka uh type <laughs> tirade onto you, is that how you accurately pronounce his
0: name? I don't know. It was uh, it was from uh, the filmmaker who dare not speak his name. It was from a Woody Allen movie. Um, mm. I think it was in the, the most problematic movie, Manhattan, when uh, he's with Diane Keaton and some obnoxious person says Van, or I think it's Diane Keaton says Van Gogh, and he's you know, he's incensed. He's like Van Gogh, like how pretentious.
1: Um, so, okay. So instead we're just going to go with Van Gogh like everybody else, right?
0: Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. And we can cut all that out if we want don't even want to talk about Woody Allen. That's fine.
1: Sure, sure. I hear you. So um, Van Gogh was most, uh, he was just such a sad, tragic figure. I yeah. feel for this guy so much. Big after time. learning more about him. We should do an entire podcast on him if you ask me. Agreed. But instead here we're going to talk about his death because there is a mystery surrounding his death. Um, He's very famous for having cut off his ear. He definitely did that. And um, I had always learned that he did it to impress a, a sex worker who he was enamored with. And he definitely did give her his ear after he cut it off. But that's not why he cut it off. He cut it off in a fit of angst, basically, after having an argument with his friend, Paul Gauguin, who he was living with in, in Arles in the south of France. And he said, well, I'm going to make some sort of lemonade out of this lemon I just gave myself. And he took it to uh, his, uh, I guess, uh, hopeful girlfriend. And I believe she was not that impressed with it.
0: Yeah, so he suffered from definitely depression. There is mm-hmm. speculation that he had bipolar disorder.
1: Yeah, I saw that too.
0: Uh, was, um, you know, just sort of long-suffering as an artist. He didn't. He only sold one painting before he died in 1890 at the age of 37. And the, the, the story goes is that he shot himself in the chest with a revolver. Uh, but it gets a little more complicated than that. And in uh, what year was the book? In 2011, there was a book written called Van Gogh, colon, The Life. Uh, written by Stephen, uh, I'm going to say, Mifa and Gregory White Smith. And it seems like they sort of launched this idea, or at least really put it in the public forefront, that he was actually killed almost certainly accidentally by one of two boys, uh, younger gentlemen, that he was hanging out with that day.
1: Right. So here's the thing, like – There's a lot of circumstantial evidence that supports that theory that uh, yeah. he was killed by two boys. I buy it. There's also it's also circumstantially mm-hmm. plausible that, you know, Van Gogh died by suicide as well. But even if you take his story and start digging into it and the statements that he made supposedly made, apparently everything we know about it comes from the owner of the inn where he rented a room's 13-year-old daughter at the time who was a witness to all this. But even if you take what he supposedly said, it still doesn't add up. That, number one, he shot himself in the chest, and most importantly, that, number two, the gun that he shot himself with could never be found. And instead um, of actually, you know, finishing... The suicide, completing the suicide, um, he he couldn't find the gun after he shot himself in the chest and just walked back to his room where he died uh, after suffering twenty more hours. But still, to the end, claiming that he had done this himself. Even if you take all that together, it seems like no, nah, this there's something really fishy going on here.
0: Yeah. So this bullet uh, misses all of his internal organs very improbably uh, because it deflected off his rib cage. And he walked, like you said, to the doctor uh, who they didn't have a surgeon on duty, so they couldn't remove the bullet. He lived a total of 30 hours after the the shot and died of infection, Uh, got to talk with his brother, you know, was was speaking to people. So he had every opportunity to say that these two boys that I was hanging out with, that I was drinking, and I say boys, I think they were maybe late teens, early 20s.
1: No, they were 16.
0: Oh, okay. I saw early 20s in another thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, hanging out, getting drunk with them. Um, one of these boys, uh, René Sacretin, had a Jeez. gun that apparently misfired a lot, and he liked playing with this thing. He liked to play cowboy, supposedly. He did. And so it, it all just seems and, – and even his statement, he, he said – he didn't say, I shot myself. He said, do not accuse anyone – it was I who wanted to kill myself.
1: Yeah, which, which is, is very a little peculiar fishy. as well. Yeah, yeah it's, for sure. it's
0: It's uh, ambiguous, I think, as far as like, because the idea is that maybe he was accidentally shot and then after he was shot, he was like, this is kind of what I wanted all along. You know, I've been mm-hmm. heading down this road toward right. suicide and then now it's just done for me.
1: So what, what seems to have happened is um, that uh, this gun... Possibly that it wasn't actually murder or any kind of premeditated murder, more like a manslaughter, where Rene and his brother um, Gaston were messing around and um, accidentally. Cowboy. Basically, <laughs> his, he he had seen a Wild Bill Cody Wild West show the year before and became obsessed with it. So that's what he was doing with the gun and playing cowboy, um, and that they had accidentally shot him with this gun that was kind of you know known to misfire. Um, so the the thing was that the gun was never found. Renee went back to school like right after that, which was still in the middle of summer break from what I saw. And um and, and the town seems to have circled the wagons around this this these boys um because you know Van Gogh was an outsider. He was not very well thought of. He used to get really drunk and argue with the locals in in the cafe and the and everything like basically every night. And this, these boys came from, like, a, a good, well-to-do family. So for many years, like, that was just the thing. Like, like it just happened. And then slowly, little by little, it seemed to have trickled out some support for this idea. Like, no, like, Van Gogh wasn't anywhere near this field. He said that he had shot himself in. He was actually on the road to the Secretan's house. Um, and then finally, years later, René Secretan said that, you know, he It probably was his gun, and that Van Gogh had somehow gotten a hold of it. it it seems It seems likely that that he was shot by them, whether accident or not.
0: yeah, and these two authors they put forth some other circumstantial evidence, like that the the bullet went in at a weird angle uh, that would not have been the angle if you shot yourself in the chest. Mm-hmm. Um, that his more recent works were a little more upbeat and a little more positive and Mm -hmm. that he was not in that kind of mindset at the time, and that he had had recently even written uh, his thoughts about suicide, that he thought it was sinful and immoral. And Uh, so they sort of use all this as evidence that he would not have done it himself, and that it was, you know, they believe it was an accident. Uh, His last words, very sad, were, um, the sadness will last forever. He spoke to his brother, which, uh, that's tough.
1: Yeah, it is. I really do want to do an episode on him.
0: And I think Secretan came out in the fifties, even and, and denied it, right? Like finally, he, once and for he all, he did.
1: He did, but he also he also said that it probably was his gun, and that somehow Van Gogh had gotten it,
0: right? But hey, that ain't my fault.
1: No, but to also to to backpedal and be like it probably was my gun, because that was another thing. Everybody's like, where did Van Gogh get a gun? Van Gogh didn't have a gun, no, and no one would have given Van Gogh a gun. You right? Know? He was the guy who got drunk every night and had cut off his ear before um that was like they, they no one in town would have given him a gun and so uh the fact that he even admitted that it was his gun is probably as close as René Circourtine ever came to confessing publicly about it you know
0: yeah and and it makes sense what he said was do not accuse anyone like that really mm-hmm. seems like he's trying to cover for these kids that he didn't yeah. want to get in trouble
1: yeah because if he wanted to die but was also he didn't want to die by his own hand. Like, mm-hmm. this is kind of a, a lucky gift in a very strange way, you know?
0: Yeah. I'm going to that uh, immersive Van Gogh thing in uh, in July. Where is that? It is at here in Atlanta. It's at the Pullman Yards. Uh, oh, yeah. Over in Kirkwood where they uh-huh. shoot like every movie in Atlanta shoots there. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's supposed to be pretty cool.
1: It's very, very neat. Sounds neat. I mean, like, do basically they just make the stars come out whenever you come in? And I think so. Like, I think come you sit in this yellow chair. I
0: think that's the deal. I think you go in, and you are surrounded by projected art in different ways. From what I can get, oh,
1: that's all, I got to check that out, man. Thanks for telling me about it. Yeah,
0: it, it looks kind of cool.
1: All right, Chuck, you want to finish out talking about Hitler?
0: Uh, don't you mean Hilter? Did you notice Is he in that? There's
1: Hil- Hilter. Oh my gosh! Yes, in the headline.
0: In even. the headline, did Hilter really do these paintings? Do do these paintings? Who, yeah, who wrote great. that? I feel bad, but like, did great. Hilter really do these paintings? <laughs> that's
1: great. Man. Oh yeah, he did them. Yeah, Hilter did these paintings. <laughs> So, um, we're talking not about Hilter, but about Hitler, Adolf Hitler in particular. And as everybody knows, uh, Hitler was a frustrated artist.
0: Yeah, big time.
1: You know, people have made a lot of hay about how possibly the world would be a totally different place had he been accepted into the uh, Vienna Academy of Arts. Um, And he came—well, I don't want to say he came close, but he made two different attempts in one year to be accepted. And they basically looked at his stuff and said— Look, man, you you have the skill of a draftsman. Mm-hmm. Maybe you should go into architecture, Like, but you're not going to be an artist. And he said, and architecture? Was, <laughs> that was a direct quote. <laughs> but this was a huge deal for him. I think I read in, the, in Mein Kampf. I haven't read Mein Kampf, but I read an article by somebody who wrote, read Mein Kampf and said that he said it was like a bolt from the blue. And that, um, you know, he was pursuing this dream that his father would, like, beat him out of. Like, yeah. his father enrolled him in a technical school. He's like, no, son of mine is going to be an artist. He would beat him up whenever he, th- he, brought, he brought the idea up. Um, and so, finally, after his father died, and then he, he nursed his male, ailing mother until she died, he got up the gumption to, like, go and enroll in art school. And apparently, he being Hitler, who I guess was, had been fairly um, bonkers his whole life, just knew that he was destined to become an artist. So yeah. the idea that he was rebuffed not once but twice by this Vienna school, these people were like the the peop- the guardians of what is art and what is not. And they were telling him, what you got is not. Um, <laughs> that was a huge deal to
0: him. It was a very big deal. And it's funny, it's just now occurring to me that there was sort of a – similar thing with Manson's re- rejection as a musician yeah, by the music industry. Um I never really kind of really thought of that parallel. But uh in 1909, Hitler is traipsing around Vienna, and he is selling watercolors copied from postcards to yeah. tourists. So if you've ever traveled to Europe, he he was one of those guys that was down by the river – uh the riverbank yeah in a van selling these <laughs> uh and literally copied from postcards so he did that for a little while made a little bit of money cuz you know if you look at his art it's it's way better than i could do it's you know it's okay oh, but yeah. like modern uh and it's it's hard to tell if modern art critics like so much goes into looking at a hitler painting and reviewing it like it's yeah. really hard to kind of separate those things but yeah the general thought is is that he had Nothing exceptional about him at all. It was, he was the kind of artist that would sell stuff down by the river to tourists. He was, they were fine. He was capable, but they were copycat paintings. He was copying things. He had no point of view. Mm -hmm. Uh, He did this in 1913 as well in Munich, painting Munich cityscapes and landscapes and selling them to tourists. And then in 1914, got hauled in by the police, uh, of all things, for failing to register for the military. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. Um and then they he he went down and registered and then they they gave him a um a physical exam, and he failed it. They said he was too weak to fire a weapon. Yeah. So they arrested him so that they could humiliate him, basically, and and then when um, World War One came around, he enlisted, and they say we need everybody we can get. Come on in, and he even actually did Hilter, fight. Yeah, yeah. Even Hilter, <laughs> um, Hilter did this army thing. Right. <laughs> um, so when he rose to power in Germany, one of the things he did was he had his works collected and destroyed. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the thinking was behind that. I guess because he knew it wasn't very good um, and he needed to focus on his political career rather than his artistic career uh, or have everybody else focus on it. But to no avail, because I saw a 1936 critic um, or a critic wrote in 1936 that his style was prosaic, utterly devoid of rhythm, Mm -hmm. color, feeling, or spiritualism. yeah, And this was before he, or I'm sorry, or spiritual imagination. And this was before he uh, had really become uh, an obvious threat. This is 1936. So, even back then, um, even without hindsight, people thought his stuff wasn't very good. So, yeah, he had his stuff destroyed. uh, And uh, that's it he he it was kind of a footnote for a very long time that he was an artist, and no one really cared after his death
0: yeah i mean this and that was one of the major reasons that he was such an art plunderer during the war and stole as much art as he could from real famous artists and famous paintings uh, because he had all this backstory as a failed artist and um it was interesting I did see that like one of his major uh I mean cuz he wasn't an utter failure at first. He had a backer early on I think who was a Jewish man.
1: Yeah, Morgenstern.
0: Yeah, which was really interesting and there was I don't know, man, it's there's a lot of speculation about what that all meant to him. Mm-hmm. And like people try and draw parallels to like some of the paintings I saw. I mean, some of it feels like a stretch, definitely like the you know, the the cold uh the cold streets of Munich like were painted, like, clearly with a, a future cleansing in mind to make it look like this. and <laughs> That's a stretch. Uh, yeah, some of that stuff seems like a stretch. But you could definitely read into the backstory, at least, I think, with some accuracy.
1: Yeah, and even if, like, you can't necessarily suss out, like, the future from, from his paintings, mm-hmm. you can make a pretty strong case that his artistic ambitions being utterly crushed, Yeah. Um, had some sort of driving force or impact on his psyche at the very least. Sure, like I, I, the, the, that, and his his later political career and, and dictatorship did not exist in a vacuum. You, I don't think you can possibly make the case that they were just unrelated in any way.
0: No, I think any sociopath you you can look at their past and see the dots connected. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, like you said, there was uh, this kind of just was the deal for a long time, and then, in, like anything else, like people wanting to get original Charles Manson music reels uh, in the early late nineties, early two thousands, there was a market for for Hitler's work. Uh, I think in two thousand nine, a British auction house, uh, someone paid one hundred and fifty grand for fifteen early sketches and watercolors, uh, including a self portrait. Uh, and then in 2015, uh, some unnamed investors paid $450,000 for a set of watercolors. I think there were 12 or 13 Yeah, that survived.
1: Yeah, the problem is is because he didn't have a style of his own, yeah. that he was copying <laughs> postcards, <clears throat> that he didn't have any formal training, um, and that he was – he lacked like a lot of creativity or any creativity it seems like it's really hard to say this is a hitler and this is a fake and there's been uh, developed a really um a really enormous market of fakes mm-hmm. because anybody who's like a passingly good um artists in watercolors of streetscapes and landscapes could drum up something and be like, this is a Hitler. And it would be really difficult to say, yes, it is or no, it's not.
0: Yeah. What kind of a garbage human do you have to be (laughs) to think, I'll do Hitler forgeries and try and sell them to garbage humans that want to collect them?
1: Yeah. And it's not like these are even fetching like $10 million a piece. We're talking like you might get ten thousand
0: dollars for it
1: for your your hitler forgery
0: (laughs) unbelievable wow but totally believable
1: so that's the mystery of the hitler paintings did he do this yeah did he do those paintings (laughs) uh you got anything else
0: i got nothing else that was a good five uh i think we have committed to doing a robust episode on the uh Gardner Museum Heist because that's a good one and that was on this list and way underplayed. For
1: sure. So keep an ear out for that, everybody. Uh, And since I said keep an ear out for that, uh, I think it's time for listener mail.
0: Yeah, I'm going to call this um, Middle Names because we had a little discussion in our John Muir episode about how uh, Emily and I and our friends... Justin and Melissa one night were going by our middle names as a joke. Mm -hmm. And I had the theory that you have no emotional connection to your middle name if you don't have a reaction when you hear it said out loud. And I just meant sort of the the non-dominant name. It didn't necessarily mean middle names because my brother goes by his middle name. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scott is his middle name. And some people do that. It's a thing. And certainly Amy does. She said, I was listening to the show, and at the end you were chatting about using middle names and how you don't have an emotional connection when you hear it. I have an interesting situation that everyone, everyone in my family uses their middle names. So I've always been called Amy ever since I was born, but my first name is Helen. Uh, This causes an interesting situation at airports and doctor's appointments where they refer to me as Helen, and I always have to remember that they're talking to me. Uh, Big fan of the show, kept me curious, and my curious spirit satisfied over the last three or four years. And it's such a comfort knowing there's always another episode to listen to. Best wishes from the UK. They're always so nice. And that is from... uh, Amy Helen Amy thanks Helen Amy
1: um, we'll just we'll just call her Amy as is customary
0: yeah because we say Helen she's like who <laughs>
1: yeah. wow I, I can't wait until they read my listener mail says Amy <laughs> uh, if you want to be like Amy and get in touch with us for whatever reason you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com
0: stuff you should know is a production of iheartradio